0: Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson and this is the West Bloc Politics, Perspectives and Players. As the deadline approaches for the US to follow through with its plan to withdraw its military from Syria by the end of April, debate continues on the resettlement of foreign ISIS fighters. President Trump is calling on allies to take back their foreign ISIS fighters who have been captured on the battlefield. Canada, the UK and others are reluctant to bring those fighters home as well as the families that sometimes now accompany them. What are the concerns about bringing these people back to Canada? Joining me now is Mubin Sheikh, a former security, intelligence, and counterterrorism operative with CSIS and the RCMP, where he was undercover, as well as an expert on countering violent extremism. Uh, Mubin, there's been so much discussion of this in the media about these ISIS fighters, as well as ISIS brides, who want to come back to Canada and say they just want to be with their families here at home. Some of them have said that they regret what they've done. What's the concern about bringing those people home, whether they're remorseful or not, and just how dangerous are they?
1: Well, you know, you're going to have to look at it on a spectrum, of course, of, of risk. Uh, you know, you're not dealing with, I mean, for example, on the hard end, you would be dealing with male combatants, let's say. Uh, individuals who have blood on their hands, literally, uh, who engaged in violent offences and so on. Uh, more on the less extreme end, I would say, are these female ISIS members. I'm not saying they're not; it's not as serious, but they're not like a hardened male combatant who's probably cut off heads. Uh, we're going to have to deal with them a little separately, of course. The risk still remains, but the risk, we would think, is not as great as it would be for a male combatant.
0: Well, and there is that discussion of different kinds of risks. The male combatant who carried out horrific acts versus the person who may not have been violent, but they were involved in the videos and the recruiting efforts on the propaganda side. And I know there's some academics who argue it's not necessarily clear that the person who was physically violent is the greater danger when they come home. So who do you think is more dangerous?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, and that's, that's why we say there's still a threat because of that um, recruiting angle. But not just not just what they would be doing actively, but their very presence, uh, the passive um, effects of their presence. So the idea that an, an ISIS member uh, could be brought back to Canada and, let's say, not face trial because of evidentiary problems. I mean, it's very difficult to collect evidence in a war zone. Uh, how are you going to prove that these people did what they did? Uh, they could very easily just say, listen, my detention with the Kurds was illegal. And number two, any of my confessions or evidence thereof should be dismissed and rejected because it was the result of torture. Uh, Imagine that. Imagine that on the psyche of Canadians, of also Syrian refugees who fled, uh, literally seas, Yazidi victims that we have, Yazidi survivors that we have living in Canada who have been under ISIS threat. Uh, It would be a travesty of justice that they be brought back and nothing happened or very little happened to them. So while the propagandizing element is definitely real, their mere presence could be a radicalizing element.
0: When it comes to that presence and and the feeling that they're here at home and they got off scot-free, do we have a sense of how many people have actually come home? And of those people, how many have the RCMP been able to charge?
1: We do have a number. I mean, there's at least, I would say, 15 people who have come back. I mean, and, you know, the number might be a little lower, might be a little higher, depending on whose test you're going to use. CSIS uses a particular test of who they consider to be returnees the RCMP uses a slightly different test as to who they consider returnees. For example, somebody who tried to go or who did get on a plane and get to Turkey, but was apprehended and intercepted by the Turks and then sent back, it's considered a returnee according to the RCMP. So um, these numbers, I mean, uh, Lauren Dawson from uh, Waterloo and Amarnath Amarasingham, of course, have done uh, really great research on this. They identified at least 12 people. Uh, half of whom are women and children. So we, again, we're dealing with a small number of male combatants that have returned. uh, But the difficulty is, again, how do you prove they committed these offenses? Look at the example of, you know, so-called Abu Huzaifa, uh, who admitted, you know, to his crimes on a New York Times uh, podcast with Rukmini Kalimaki. Uh, They couldn't charge him. Why? Why was the confession on the podcast not enough? Uh, certainly, the journalist is not going to testify in court, uh, so how do you then uh, lay a charge in this in this condition? The other example, of course, is the peace bond. But if you put somebody on a peace bond, then you can no longer monitor and surveil them. So it might be in the benefit and interest of the RCMP to not put them on a peace bond so they can continue their surveillance operations.
0: Is that why the government seems hesitant to bring people back? In the last election, there was this huge debate about uh, pulling people's citizenship if they had dual citizenship. And the Liberals kept saying, as everyone remembers, a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. So a lot of people thought that maybe a Liberal government would help these ISIS fighters come home. But it seems like they're not very interested in doing that.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, the uh, you know contempt and disgust Uh, that is elicited in us when we hear about ISIS or ISIS members or people who would have left such a great country like Canada to go and join, I can understand the sentiment. And this is being felt across the world where other countries are doing the same thing. Britain, of course, we've been hearing about Shamima Begum. There's a question about whose citizen is she? Uh, There's a second case now of Huda Muthanna in the U.S., Uh, She was the daughter of a Yemeni diplomat. Is she an American? Uh, There's also the question in Australia of the the same thing. So some countries have been using this uh, citizenship stripping. But I think what we need to look at is the reality that there are Canadians who are still Canadian. We haven't stripped their citizenship, and they remain as prisoners in foreign prisons. Uh, So one very realistic, I think, outcome of this is that it is possible that the Canadians who are there, where the Canadian government does not wish to repatriate, it is possible that they may end up in a foreign prison, like an Iraqi prison or in a Turkish prison. More so the Turkish prison, because they would at least promise that they won't execute them. Canada could not deport anyone or uh, extradite anyone where the death penalty would exist. But uh, the Australians have done this in the sense that Neil Prakash who was a very active ISIS member uh, with arguably Australian citizenship, is in a Turkish prison. And the Australians are like, listen, we hope that the Turks will keep them for a very long time. And if they do decide to send them back to us, we will continue to incarcerate. So these people will not uh, see freedom for a very long time.
0: What happens if Canada does not bring people back who are in Kurdish custody right now? Do you think that the Kurds will execute them or perhaps they turn them over to the Iraqis or the Syrians or the Turks? What happens to those Canadian citizens if they're not returned to Canada?
1: Well, there, it's only bad options from here on. I mean, they could, on the very extreme end, uh, they could be murdered by people around them, uh, you know, other victims. Yes, they're being kept separately in camps, uh, but it remains to be seen what happens. I don't think the Kurds will execute them. The Kurds are trying to put on, a, you know, a professional demeanor. Uh, but I think they very well could uh, turn people over to the Iraqis. Uh, this has been done already. There are foreign fighters, including women, who have been executed by the Iraqi authorities. Some governments are trying to postpone and pressure them to not do so. Um, but they're not in an election year like we are. So... Uh, those Canadians who are over there stand a very, very uh, indefinite future, shall we say. Uh,
0: some say, why not bring these former fighters home and put them into de radicalization programs? What do you think of our programs here in Canada, and is there any evidence that they work?
1: Look, I mean, de radicalization generally, uh, as a human process, does work. I mean, I've gone through it myself. I know many others who have gone through it, not just ex, you know jihadist supporters, but uh, ex-neo-Nazis as well. So the process, when it is natural, is a very uh, successful one. The difficulty is when you get into replicating that process artificially. Uh, somebody who's been you know, captured uh, because they're part of a losing group in a war, uh, of course, a lot of them do see the error of their ways. It's very difficult to know how sincere they are. And then when it comes to the context in Canada, we, for all our talk and for all the mil- millions of funding uh, that's been provided by public safety, uh, there are very few programs, very few programs, uh, a lot of them now cropping up because of this increased attention on ISIS. But to this day, we still do not have any kind of counter-radicalization program in prisons. Uh, we have had uh, terrorists uh, convicts from the Toronto 18 case that I was involved in. Uh, who have done at least 10 years in prison, uh, who did not get any counter-messaging the whole time. And the vast majority of them are already out. So uh, it's a very good question. You know, what programs are you even going to bring them into? And that last part about do we know they work, we will only be able to tell answer that question years down the road, years down the road. It will not be sufficient to simply say, listen, we can talk to them, we can, you know, counsel them out of it and that's it. How long does it take? Three months, three years? We just don't know.
0: When you hear some of the interviews with ISIS brides, they say, I just came here to marry or I came to support my husband and now I have a child, so I need to come home to Canada. What do you make of that argument?
1: Look, I believe, I believe when it comes to very young people, teenagers, they are dumb. Um, yes, most people don't become terrorists, uh, but. Unfortunately for some, the pathway to extremism presents itself. Uh, And it is also true that once you got over there, you could not leave. And especially the women, they learned that the hard way. Um, Many people were executed because of that. Foreigners, foreigners who tried to leave, women who tried to leave, they were executed. Uh, Other women were sexually assaulted by ISIS, uh, claims that they were spies. So I, I accept all that. Uh, But that is the consequence of the action that you took going to join the group. And a lot of these people knew exactly what they were doing. You know, you will not be able to make the, you know, child soldier argument, for example. Uh, You know, the videos of ISIS, their propaganda was all over the internet at that time. So they took conscious decisions. You can make the argument sure that they were vulnerable, whatnot, but that is. Those mitigating aspects will be something for a court to decide, uh, assuming they even get to the court in the first place.
0: How do you handle the situation with the children? Because there are a lot of young children being held in these prison camps with their parents. Is there a way for the Canadian government to bring those children home or do they have to bring the parents if they bring the children?
1: Yeah, it's again, the Kurdish, uh, you know, they they don't want to keep any of these people. And they will not accept for Canadians to come there and say, listen, we just want you to take the children away from them and we will repatriate the children. The Kurds basically are saying it's an all or nothing deal, right? If you're going to take one, you got to take them all. So unfortunately for us, uh, we, we can't. And just imagine the, 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 uh, you know, the, the per- public perception of us going into these camps removing the children, possibly forcibly, from the parents only to bring them back. There are things that we can do for the children. There are extended members of the family, especially where we vetted those families, because we don't want them to reinforce and recycle the radicalization process. But there are extended members of the family who are willing to help. Uh, There are Muslim foster homes that these children can be put into. So there are options available, even for those that are a little bit older, that we might fear have been indoctrinated and could be part of this, you know, uh, the cubs of the caliphate, as they called it. But we can deal with them. You know, children are very resilient, young children, especially. We have the expertise dealing with child soldiers. But once again, the Kurds are not going to just simply come in and let us come in and take the kids and leave and, and not take the rest of them with us.
0: Mubin, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Most welcome. Thank you.
0: Thanks for checking out the West Block podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple podcast, Google podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block, Facebook, and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.